0: new series. We're calling it Roadmap, and let me tell you something. We have been hammering home this idea that the Bible is a is a direct word from God, and I, I get it. I know that there is a, uh, I'm trying to think of the, the right words to use, but there is, there is a, a very popular teaching even right now in churches that that, that, has, that has this idea that the Bible is nothing more than uh, the recorded interactions of people with God, and so it's filled with bias and cultural bias, and, you know, we just have to kind of take it with a grain of salt. Uh, we have to take the things that work for us and discard the things that don't. And that type of, and and, and this is using their terminology, that type of progressive theology is just something that I, I reject. I reject it because even on its face as you're reading the scripture, that is not what the writers believed. They believed that they were writing something that God was instructing them to write and they believed they were referencing the other writings as being authoritative, okay? So within scripture, if it was, if it was a, a kind of a farce, then it falls apart even with the people who were writing it because they believed in their own words that God had instructed them to write these things. And so the scriptures become a roadmap for us, right? Uh, how many of you uh, regularly turn on some type of GPS to get to a place that you're going, right? And, and how many of you can remember the days before GPS, right okay and some of us can remember those days now i will tell you i have historically been an early adopter on technology uh when I got married, I married my beautiful wife, Carmen, and within a year, I, I would joke that I had a second wife named Garmin. It was my GPS that sat in the car, and I would be like, and she had a British accent, because you know, you could go in and change the accent, and so I would joke with Carmen that I had a British Garmin in the car, and then she would say, it's not funny, <laughs> and so I stopped making that joke. But I, I, I had a GPS... <laughs> you'll learn that real quick when you get married uh uh so I had a GPS right when they right when they were available right and now I have slowed down because I feel that technology though useful today has gotten more and more invasive into my privacy and I'm not really hip on that I'll talk more about that in a moment make you squirm if uh if you disagree but uh, I, had, I had a garment and, and it revolutionized the way that men specifically, stereotypically moved from one location to the other because now we did not have to uh, drive around aimlessly not asking for direction right? Because that was kind of the joke back in the day was that a man's not going to stop and ask somebody where to go. They'll, they just, they'll figure it out. And, and that kind of has been removed. And so we live in a generation today that doesn't know what it was like to, to have a giant roadmap pulled up into the windshield and trying to like, no, I got this. I don't need to ask anybody. But, but, but we have, we have for a very long time understood the importance of knowing where we're going. Right. We can go back even further if we talk nautical terms. Uh, the, the 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 people that sailed the oceans learned how to navigate based on the stars. And do you know how complicated that is? Like you you just think to yourself like, oh, well, you just follow this star, right? But the stars are constantly shifting and moving. And they learned how to read the map in the midst of all the twists and turns uh, that are ex- that are happening up in space. They, they learned how to read the stars to get to the places that they were going. And so having a roadmap is critical. We've, we fundamentally get this. This is not complicated. Having directions, knowing where you're going from point A to point B is something everybody in the room can understand. So why would it be any different, right? Why would it be any different when we're talking about our walk with Christ, when we're talking about the gospel, when we're talking about interacting with Jesus and being believers? Why would there not be some instruction that gets us from... Point A to point B to point C, and there is a there's a process that's taking place. And so I want to talk about specifically the gospel inside of this and what is that roadmap for the gospel. So Last Saturday, just over a week ago, there was a video that uh, populated online, and there was a celebrity who was talking about their faith. Now, this is somebody who has historically uh, called themselves uh, publicly a Christian, and oh, she can come on and preach. It's good. I I don't mind the assistance. Uh, We've got, uh, we we don't have children's church right now because of uh, the virus. So just in case any parents are in here wondering like how I feel about it, I have four kids. I can't tell you how many times in early days of ministry, one of them came up on the platform and just stood beside me while I was preaching or whatever. So I'm I'm a I'm a family man. I'm all through and through. So if kids are screaming, I'm not the one that's going to be freaking out over that. So I'm just thankful people are here. But but this uh, this gentleman, he put out a thing. He's claimed to be a Christian. He's talked about his faith. In fact, I've heard him quoted in churches. And 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 I bring this up because we already had this kind of this this series ready to go. We've been working on it, but, but I want to point out something inside of this video, and I'm, I'm not going to name names on this, uh, but, but I do want to talk about a quote that was inside of the video. He said, there's no one way to heaven, no one way to paradise. It's like television. Now there's over 800 channels on cable, and they're all pretty entertaining, so I'm pretty sure that to get to heaven, there's got to be more than one route. Because somebody watching another channel, taking another channel, or taking another channel than you, they're still getting entertained, and they probably still getting to heaven. And unfortunately, this is just not true. This is not a a biblical truth. The scripture does not uh, <laughs> the scripture does not actually uh, uh, correlate with this. And. But this, and I've been telling you guys now for months, like this is getting more and more prevalent, right? It's not new, don't get me wrong. Like we can go back through history and see there are people who have believed these things, taught these things. There, there's a difference between somebody rising up saying something like this and the church and the community going, hey, that's not true, right? And where we're at today. Right now, this type of idea is being more and more embraced. And the idea uh, is that, all of these different religions in the world lead to God, right? Now, can, can I tell you something? Like, and maybe this is just me as a, as a, as a, a Gen Xer, okay? Uh, using some of this uh, cultural lingo that's out there. Like, I get that. Like, I, I have enough compassion in me. I want you to understand that I get that. It's like, oh man, how great would that be? But I have a couple of realizations in my life. First of all, God knows more than I will ever know. He sees things in a way I can never see. And, and that has become all the more true as I have been a parent, right? As a dad, I have seen on just a, on a micro scale that type of interaction with my kids where I, my kids respond to something and I'm like, wow, you are so wrong, right? But I, I, I can see it inside of you, you think you're right, right? But you're wrong. And, and, and so I know that God has experiences like that, right? With us. So, so I know that. So, 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 what I, what I can't do is I can't allow my personal compassion to overrule God's compassion, right? My definition of love to overrule God's definition of love. And so I have to lean into the scripture and say, okay, God, what are you saying? And so this idea that even, even one of the other popular ones I addressed a, few, uh, a couple of months ago, that, that all of them lead to God, but the best one is Christianity, it's still just not true. And, and if we jump into that, if we kind of jump into that pool and we start buying into this and accepting it and, and talking about it, and we're, we're going to lose people in the kingdom of heaven, right? We're going to lose people that we care about. And Paul is concerned about where our faith is. And, and so that's what we're going to be talking about today. So uh, on the beginning of the journey, uh, there, sometimes you get provoked, right? Right? Sometimes the reason you start the journey is because you've been provoked. Paul is starting a journey because he's been provoked. Uh, A couple of months ago, it's actually been, it's almost a year ago now, I guess, uh, uh, Kenneth, uh, our coffee shop manager called me up and said that he had somebody on the phone who was telling him that they were with the sheriff's department and that he had to bring X amount of dollars, a hundred bucks, 200 bucks, and meet them and give it to them or they were going to arrest him and so it's like super scammy but he's receiving this at work and they're telling him things about himself that he's like how do you know this so he's a little bit freaking out and I'm at home that day it was, it was on a Monday I'm at home and so somebody calls me from another phone and says hey here's what's going on and I'm like Kenneth do not go anywhere until we get more answers right and uh, so I call the sheriff's department the sheriff's department says this is a scam that's been going on and that that people are meeting these individuals and giving them money, and they actually were meeting them at the sheriff's department, just on the outskirts of the property. Like, that's how brazen this is. So, like, I get off the phone, and I'm calling Kenneth, right? And he's not answering the phone because he's afraid to switch over. I know he's out there right now getting the coffee bar put together. Hopefully he hears me telling the story. And, man, my wife knows I was freaking out. I was provoked. Like, I was, like, I was mad. I was shaking, not at Kenneth, but at whoever was messing with Kenneth, right? I was looking for my keys, and it was go time. Like, I was like, I'm going to find where Kenneth is at, and I might be driving my vehicle into somebody if they're trying to hurt Kenneth, right? Because I love Kenneth. I've got Kenneth's back. And I'm thinking all these things like, like Liam Neeson. Like, take any Liam Neeson movie, and I'm like, it's pumping through my blood in that moment, right? I don't know how he stays so cool and calm, though, because I was shaking. I was like... <sighs> Like, I couldn't handle the amount of adrenaline that was pumping through me. And, and, and thankfully, we were able to get in touch with Jessica. Jessica got in touch with Kenneth, and Kenneth went straight to the police department, and nothing happened. But there are times where the journey begins by being provoked. And hopefully you get that. Hopefully you get that. Sometimes the journey that you'll be on is one that begins by provocation. So the rabbis back in Jesus' day had this saying, there is joy in heaven when God obliterates one sinner off the earth. Now, that's pretty, pretty violent sounding, right? right? And so the rabbis would say this, and Jesus comes along, and what does he say? He says, there is joy in heaven when one sinner repents. And, and I just I want to point this out, because I think we get, we, we live in a culture of offense right now, right? And it's like, hey, you can't offend anybody. The, when you begin to dive into scripture, Jesus was extremely offensive Jesus was constantly like like this was a jab like Jesus was really quick to be like well you've heard it said but let me say it to you this way those were like those were those were those were bars from a hip-hop song going number one and everybody talking about it right I mean this was boldness that was being this is why people were following Jesus because the things he was saying were revolutionary not revolutionary like oh this is a new idea revolutionary like we're starting a revolution right and so this is again remember people thought Jesus was going to come and overthrow the king and set up a new kingdom right then and there they had they did not understand that he was going to the cross so so many of them were following him because they thought like we're going to be a part of the army in fact when we get to the last supper right they're sitting there they're sharing communion and they're they're having the disciples are having a debate over who's going to be like sitting at his right hand when he's ruling over the world and Jesus is like hey you're going to deny me before they crucify me and they're all like crucify you. Like why what are you talking about? So the point being, the things Jesus was saying, they were creating conflict, contention. This is why the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they hated him because the things he said were in direct contradiction. They were offensive to the things that they were teaching. So This whole conversation births around the idea of salvation. So how you define salvation will lead you to either the view of the rabbis or the view of Jesus. The way that you interpret scripture and the way that you kind of piece the gospel together and say, this is how salvation looks, it's going to take you down one of these two paths where you begin to look at sinners and think God hates them and wants them gone, or you're going to look at sinners and say, God wants to know them and he wants them to repent. And so, what it ultimately comes down to is arrogant and false teaching led Christians to ask the question, are we saved by works, faith, or some mixture? So you have these apostles who, many of them have walked with Jesus. Paul, the it, it, kind of the exemption to that, has an interaction with Jesus And they're coming out and they're preaching the gospel, but there are people who are coming in around them and they're preaching a completely different gospel. And so there's this confusion within the church. And so you'll see this throughout the letters of the New Testament. They're constantly coming back and readdressing the the whole idea of salvation because there are people who are arrogant. Like, right. I'm super smart. I've got all these degrees. I've done all these things. You need to listen to what I'm saying. And I know what I'm talking about. It's, it's, it's an arrogance and it's false. Right. And I'll just remind you that when Jesus was going around and picking the disciples, he did not go over to the university. Right. Because there were schools. He didn't go over there and pick out the brightest and the smartest. He picked out the ones that had been told you're not good enough, and they were at home learning the family trade. That's why they were fishing. That's why they were doing carpentry, because they had been told by the school system of the the day, you aren't good enough. Go learn your family trade. And Jesus comes, and he begins to pick them out of their family trade to come. So there's a truth that did not require anything other than belief in what Jesus was saying. And then there is another group of people that are, that are pumping into the churches information that is not true. Now, I say arrogant because I, from my side of it, look at them and think to myself, like, it's really arrogant to go, I'm smarter than the text. I'm smarter than... Jesus. I'm smarter than the work that's been established, right? But I have to tell you that while I'll call them arrogant, they probably didn't see themselves as arrogant. They probably believed that they were doing the work of God. And so you ended up with four different kind of salvation processes that were being debated within the church. Works only, right? And this is what Islam is today, is a works only. This is what they were believing. Uh, The the Jews at the time believed that they had the law and they had to obey the law and that God was judging them based on the law. There was this, these, these new ideas around faith, and so you had works plus faith, faith plus works, and then you had faith alone. And faith alone is what the apostles were teaching, right? And that's what the, the, the whole of Christendom is built on, is faith alone, right? We believe that Jesus is the Son of God. We reject the enemy as being any type of deity or God, right? It is God the Father and God the Son. We put our hope in Him. And then, like a tree we become healthy and there's fruit, right? So, so works are completely removed from the salvation process, but they are a fruit of salvation. So they don't even fall in this list, but the reason that works come back into the conversation, right? James will talk about this. The, the idea of, of works is that if we're healthy in the process, we will be producing, okay? So there'll be evidence of it. So these become the four primary things uh, or or, or I guess patterns of faith that are birthing in the church at the time. Now, Paul's ministry is one that is built around bringing uh, slight correction, right? So as a church gets a little bit off base, he'll write a letter to bring them back in. Uh, He'll hear that they're teaching this or that they're doing that, and he'll say, hey, listen, I've heard that you've got somebody who's, you know, engaged in sexual immorality, and you need to set them out, let them be sifted. Uh, He always takes time, though, to lift them up and talk about the things that they're doing that are good, okay? So he talks about the things that they do that are good, and then he brings correction. But there's one instance, right, where Paul gets kind of feisty. In fact, Paul gets mad, and that is when he writes the letter to the Galatians. And so if you, if you we're gonna be talking about this book of Galatians, it's six chapters and uh, it's not one that's taught as often because it's pretty spicy. Um, you have some of the, the church, early church leaders like John Bunyan who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, John Wesley who did ministry right here in Savannah, Georgia, uh, and Martin Luther. These Galatians was their favorite. Right, These guys loved the book of Galatians. They couldn't get enough of it. In fact, it was said of, John, uh, I mean, of Martin Luther that the epistle was the pebble from the brook with which, like another, David, Luther, went forth to meet the, the papal giant and smite him in the forehead, right? So uh, Luther, of course, uh, his thesis, and he came against some of the heresy that the Catholic Church was teaching at the time. Right? And, and so they said that, that Galatians was like his pebble, right? In fact, uh, Martin Luther even used this language. He said that it was, uh, I talked about my, my Garmin at the beginning, my GPS. He called Galatians his Katie, right? That was his other wife. He said, I'm married to it. And, and so he's married to a, a nun named Catherine. And then he says, Galatians is my Katie. It's my GPS, right? It's my roadmap in, 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 in my daily life. And I don't know how she felt about it, but I'm sure if she told him to stop, he stopped, uh, not, not finding it too funny, right? But let me, let me go on and say this, that if you go home today, and I would encourage you, anytime we're teaching, go home, do research. Like, I'm not trying to present to you an idea inside of a scripture that, that I'm like, oh, don't go and read about this, okay? That was part of what Martin Luther was confronting at the time. Uh, you're going to discover that there are a lot of... Of pastors, teachers, theologians who, they do not like the book of Galatians, and in fact, it's actually, you'll find that there are people who say, look, this is not something that you need to make a part of your regular reading, and the arguments that they make is that it's too emotional, right, which this one's kind of odd to me, that it's too emotional, because especially in today's culture, because emotion is just so, like, it's like a, it's like, Emotions like as valuable as gold uh, in decision making, Uh, but they say it's too emotional, it's too personal, right? Uh, Paul really just bears all inside of this because he's hoping to be able to lay out a persuasive argument for why the things that they're saying are heresy and that there's only one gospel. Uh, Some say it's too spiritual, right? I, I've had people who have come and, uh, and left the church before because they've said, Jim, you're just not spiritual enough, or Pastor Jim, you're just too spiritual. I, I don't know what that means, right? I'm, I, 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 and I've never had anybody say, okay, well, let's sit down. I'll explain to you what it means. Like, it's, you're, just, you're not spiritual enough, or you're too spiritual, and, and we've got to go somewhere else. People make this argument about Galatians. It's just too spiritual, I don't know how you come to that conclusion. And then the fourth is that it's too controversial. I will tell you, it's controversial, and we'll get into a little bit of it today, but the next few weeks will definitely be um, a good old spicy burger for most of us, right? Uh, so if you were thinking to yourself this whole time that, ah, Scripture's not, you know, really offensive and confrontational, it is very offensive and confrontational. And I'm going to try my best to kind of uh, bring it at the, at the level that Paul did for uh, uh, for the sake of helping us connect. That's all, you know. Uh, uh, A pastor, David Paulson, said that the reason that the, talking about the church, the reason we get to this place in the church is because we do not want to use our intellect. He says that this is the reason why Paul's having to write to the church in, in Galatia, because they aren't, they don't care about facts. They don't care about truth. Right? And they don't want to practice that, that, that reality of discovering truth. Can, can I tell you that as a parent, and if you're a parent in the room, you've got to know this is true. There are times where your kids are just wrong, right? They're just wrong and you know that they're wrong, but they so passionately believe that they are right. But can I tell you that the emotion of the moment does not change anything, they're still wrong. Right? And, and, and this is something that we've talked to our kids about their whole lives. Like there are gonna, there's going to come a day, right? I've shared this before. There's going to come a day where you're going to look at me and you're going to think to yourself, I am smarter than my dad. I am smarter than he is. I know more. How did this happen, right? And I've prepped them for that, right? And, and I've told this before. My son Isaac, who I, I am extremely proud of, 18 years old, freshman in college, crushing life. He's doing so great. Um, if you don't know him, you should know him. He's a, I'm just telling you, I'm really proud of him. But there was a moment. There was a moment where we were standing in the hallway, and we were having a conversation. And he looked at me, and I said, it's happening, isn't it? True story. I said, it's happening. He goes, backed up. What's happening? I said you're you're thinking that thing I've been telling you you would think. And he was like, "How did you know?" <laughs> right? And I don't by the grace of God, I just I just want to say that I am not that smart, but I knew in that moment. So I'm going to say that was the prompting of the Holy Spirit in my life, but I told him I called it right there. And and that might be one of those moments in his life that is a defining moment for the rest of his life. I hope that that goes into his biography one day. Right? So some would say, well, the reason that Paul gets so upset is because Paul was just legalistic, right? Well, I would have to argue against that. Paul was really not a legalistic person. In fact, if we go to the book of Romans chapter 14, Paul says each should be persuaded in his own mind as to when they practice the Sabbath. So he says some people are making a big to-do around when they practice the Sabbath. Paul says, let each person work that out for themselves, right? You need to, you need to honor and practice the Sabbath, but... Really, when you do that is, is not for me to say. So, so Paul was clearly not a legalistic person. Um, and so this is why uh, Galatians is so important. Paul understands there are things worth fighting over and things worth letting go. His character, his life has has exhibited this for us, right? So we can come to Galatians and go like, this is a guy who wants what's best for people, not a guy who's trying to just be a bully and you know, see how many people will do what he says. He has practiced this in his life that he is there to serve and to honor people and to help them connect with Jesus. So I believe that we are entering and have already entered a season in which the church will have to once again declare what we hold on to. This is a season that you and I are walking into and our children are going to inherit whatever stand we make right now. The divide that's happening in the church, around doctrine and theology, what, what, wherever we draw the line, wherever we begin to say enough is enough, Whenever we, where, wherever we're willing, however far down the Galatians mindset we're willing to go to defend the scripture, that's what we're leaving for our children and our grandchildren should Jesus not return and and i just want to tell you um i i I hear and i I receive all the things that are out there being said that these are the last days and you know that jesus is returning and it's going to happen any day I, i want jesus to return okay i i'm excited for jesus to return i am ready for that mystery and the wonder of eternity but I trust him and if it does not happen in my lifetime, I am perfectly fine with that. What I have to be doing though, is making sure that the gospel is being spread to the four corners of the earth and that my children are given every opportunity to know him, right? There's a huge advantage. Like we use this word privilege right now, kind of we toss it around. I'm not gonna jump down that rabbit hole for you, but I wanna pull the word back in and say, if we wanna talk about privilege, the children of believers, have a huge privilege on their life, and the scripture lays that out. If you raise your children up to know him, there, there's an advancement that takes place, right? There's, there's, a, there's a, a season of blessing that they're going to have in their lives long before others even begin to get that season of blessing. And so knowing the Lord creates an incredible ble- uh, uh, amount of privilege in their lives. What we decide and what we fight for in these coming years, right, And sometimes it might be some some tough things that we say, and it might mean that we say goodbye to some friends along the way. That's what we're gonna leave for our children. That's the way that I think. It's the way I live my life. I'm constantly thinking, what am I going to leave for my children and my grandchildren? Proverbs 13 says, a wise man leaves an inheritance for his children's children. And that word inheritance is not exclusively confined to how much money you leave your children's children, right? Inheritance is so much more. There is legacy that's built into that idea. And so what is it that we are leaving for them? Now, the typical type of things that Paul addresses are sin, poor teaching, apathy within the church, right? But the Galatians had something altogether different going on, okay? Um, And they had a group of people who, who were called Judaizers that were coming in behind Paul, and they were teaching things that were contrary to what Paul was teaching. Now, a Judaizer is someone who claims to be a follower of Christ, but is very legalistic and believes the only way to Christ is through Judaism or some form of Judaism. So the Judaizers would come in and they would say, well, Jesus is the fulfillment of these Old Testament prophecies, so we have him as a Messiah, but we still have to do all the things that are inside of the law, even though we have teaching that comes directly from Jesus' mouth, as well as the apostles around what that actually looks like. They come in behind Paul and they say things like, if you're not doing all of these specific things, then you're actually not saved. And so it's, can can you imagine the confusion that if they're opening up the platform and they're allowing people to speak and people are hearing these types of things, can you imagine the types of confusion that this is bringing into the church. You see, they believed you have to adopt a workspace system in your life in order to be saved. And this goes contrary to the teachings of the New Testament. This is a contradiction to what we know as the gospel. So one point to make is that the list of what was expected out of the more than 600 laws shifted with culture. And the reason I think this is important is that it was not like, hey, we've picked out eight things that you really should be doing all the time. No, if we go back and we look at extra biblical text, if we look at ancient writings from within the church, what we find is that the list of things that these Judaizers were saying were important, it shifted based on what was important inside of culture. That, for me, makes it extremely relevant today because there are people who in my life are telling me what are the important things that you should be talking about from the platform what are the important things that you should be fighting for what are the important things that you should be a part of in the resistance and all of those things shift with culture right and this is the thing we know we talk about the immutable character of God God is he's never changing right? God is consistent. His character is the same. The way He loves is the same. And so our response to Him, right, does not have to shift and dodge and, 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 and move around to fit some type of cultural narrative. We have to be able to go directly to the throne room of God with confidence. So uh, uh, there is therefore a major difference between Paul's approach and these Judaizers, right? Because Paul He went to the lost and preached Jesus. He started churches, and he poured his life into people, right? So this was the way that Paul did ministry. He went to where there was no church. He loved the people. He shared the gospel. He started a church. He raised up pastors. He stayed in their lives. It was difficult to do. It was not like, like it wasn't like dropping an email today, right? You want to send word to a friend across the country, you drop an email, they've got it instantly. Like, he would write these 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 letters, and then he had to find somebody he could trust. He had to pay their expenses to get them to travel across the land to take it to the church. So getting a letter was quite the the big the big deal. It was not some little you know insignificant thing that they'd get these letters because Paul was dedicated to the cause. He was dedicated to the process. But the Judaizers saw it as their calling to come into the churches. Others started and pastored to correct their teaching. Do, we ever, do you ever see people like that? Do you ever see people that come into the midst of a work and all of a sudden they just seem to know better than all the church leaders, right? And they, they seem to have better ideas and better theology, And one of the things that I just love, and and I've just come to appreciate it over time. When I was a a young pastor, you know, it just it it hurt, right? Because it felt like a personal attack. But now I know it's not a personal attack. It's just a broken nature within an individual. But one of the things that I, I love about this is that they work really hard to kind of section off and create division right? And it's so obvious, right? When when the when the pastor and the church leadership is calling for people to be, for us to be united in the faith, that we should be encouraging one another, we're teaching the scripture, and somebody else is saying, oh, there needs to be, we need to separate from these people, or we can't be a part of this. Like, it just becomes really clear that any call for division within the church, right, is within a healthy church, is not from God. And, and the Judaizers are coming in, and this is how they live their lives. They just have not gotten a clear picture of who Jesus. is Uh, several commentaries that I was reading through they they refer to the Judaizers as parasites so parasites require a host to draw nourishment from at the expense of another right I thought, man, that's a that's a really powerful illustration. The idea that that in order for them to receive nourishment, they have to, like a parasite, go and latch on to something. And these Judaizers had come into these churches in this region of Turkey, all right, and it's a number of churches, and they had infiltrated and they were getting all of their identity from feeding off of uh, these ministries. So what we call them at city churches, we call them wolves, and we beat wolves with sticks, right? Uh, and so when we find out that there's a wolf, uh, uh, we go all uh, Liam Neeson on them, right? Uh, I'm trying to think of a uh, politically correct term right there. Liam Neeson's pretty pretty, pretty adequate, I think. So, uh, so Paul had encountered these people in Antioch when he was with Barnabas. So this wasn't the first time that he had encountered these uh, Judaizers. Let's go to Acts chapter 15, verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So you have a group of Judaizers. They come in and they go, look, I know you've heard everything that Paul said he's not here now, I need to tell you something else you were missing, you've got to be circumcised. Now, if you don't know what circumcision is, that's a conversation for, um, call your mom and dad up. So Paul and Barnabas travel to Jerusalem to meet with their spiritual authority to make a determination. This is really important, right? Spiritual authority is a significant thing that, I'll be honest, I am am guilty of not talking enough about this, but this is the model in which the church was established. It's the model in which Scripture calls for us to operate. And so there is a spiritual authority in even these leaders' lives. And so they go to Jerusalem to speak to the spiritual authority, About this because now there's a debate. Do they have to be circumcised for their faith to be made whole or do they not have to be? And so they are in the midst of this and James begins to speak up in verse 19, therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. So circumcision is determined to be secondary, right? If they want to be circumcised, let them be circumcised. If they don't want to be circumcised, they don't have to be circumcised. This is not significant for the Gentiles. Now, it would have been enough for maybe in our minds to just address the situation, but I love how the Holy Spirit is at work through the authors because what do we do? We use this language of primary and secondary. So we talk about primary being the types of things we won't debate, virgin birth, Jesus is returning, God created... Uh, Everything He's all-powerful. Secondary, that's where we come into some of these ideas around eternal security, you know, the idea of once saved, always saved. So they're secondary. We do do not believe that people have to hold on to that or even believe it in order to be saved. We use the language here, open-handed and closed-handed, right? Virgin birth, closed-handed, we're not discussing that. That's a part of the faith. Open-handed would be eternal security. Now, one of the things I realized in preparing this is that we use this language, and, and a lot of us get this, this idea when we're talking about doctrine and theology, but we forget to use it when we're talking about lifestyle. And that's exactly what is happening right here. By the the direct guidance of the Holy Spirit, James says, hey, circumcision is open-handed lifestyle choice right? But there are some closed-handed things. And if I don't mention that there are some closed-handed lifestyle choices, you might think that all lifestyle choices are open-handed. And so he lists out three of them, right? And so we are given this juxtaposition in how to identify what type of lifestyle choices matter to God and what do not. So the first one that he mentions here in his list is things that are polluted by idols. So he's creating a line between participation and witchcraft, worship of other gods. The idea being this. As a Christian in this time, you are not going to go and make a sacrifice to another to another god, okay? That was being taught really thoroughly. People understood. You don't go and, and make sacrifices to idols. You don't eat the meat from that What James is saying is he says, look, there has to be a distinction. We don't want to participate in events, activities where others are doing that. So there's going to be a sacrifice to another God, and they're going to have leftovers, and they want to have a community festival, and they say, hey, we want you to come on. It doesn't matter, you know, that you're a Christian. It's fine. Come on and and take part in this and have a bite to eat. And James is making this, this statement. He's like, look, do not engage in the arena where things are polluted by idols. Now, I'm going to tell you, um, I've got a video dropping on Tuesday on Prophecy. We're working diligently on trying to get up to Salem. We've got a video that we want to put out on uh, Wicca, fastest growing religion in America right now. And here's what I realize about it and why I want to talk about it is that things are happening around us all the time. And you and I have no clue we have no clue. I heard the testimony of one guy in Hollywood who said, what? No, there's no way there's a bunch of witchcraft, you know, false God worshiping people in Hollywood. And, and then one night he couldn't sleep. So he started doing some research and he was like, oh, I found this. He said, I found this dagger and this dagger is used in rituals. And then he was like, oh my gosh, that's sitting on the mantle place of this Celebrity whose house I've been in, and all of a sudden he began to see that the that the that the the, the 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 stuff that is a part of that worship was all around him in his life, and he had no clue. So you're not going to be able to address this first one if you don't get a little bit of wisdom and begin to understand what's happening. I watched a video a couple of weeks ago. Um, uh, one of the practices that they do is to bless an area, and so they have this. In essence, it looks like a bundle of sticks, and they it burns real slow. And you'll see them, and they'll be doing this while they're walking around. It almost looks like they're putting incense in the air. That's a part of the practice. And I watched a video of an NBA player doing that before a game, right, walking the court. Nobody, nobody knows what's going on because. Honestly, we're just disconnected, but, but these things are happening around us. And James says it's really important. Hey, we need to make sure that we aren't engaging in practices that are polluted by idols. The second one that he says is sexual immorality. Uh, and just the, the word in the Greek here, porneus, uh, is where we get the, wor- the, the word pornography from. Uh, this type of sexual immorality is fornication, whoredom, prostitution. And, and, and this is something I, I want to I wanna touch on, right? Because we keep, this, this it just keeps coming up, right? In almost every text that you get into in Scripture, there is conversation around sexual immorality. And we live in an extremely sexualized culture, all right? If you don't believe me, I'm, you're under a rock, we can... You know, turn on the TV for 30 seconds, right? Um, and sometimes we're just, we don't even know that it's happening. Um, a really hilarious, uh, awkward moment happened for us uh, at Christmas. Carmen and I uh, had a Christmas movie that, that we love, and there were just some innuendos in it that we had not caught right and had not thought about and carmen was like oh it'll be a lot of fun we'll do like a a movie with uh isaac our oldest and it was like uh like it was a hundred degrees in the house right you know i mean it wasn't but man we were sweating and we realized like oh my gosh like we're so disconnected and and maybe isaac doesn't know what's going on but isaac being younger and hipper than us was, was like, that was really awkward uh, watching that Christmas movie with my mom and dad, and, right? And it's like, it's like, and I share this not to embarrass anybody, but it's a reality. We live, we live in a hyper-sexualized culture. And it, it was the very same for them because this is one of the great tools the enemy uses. And this is why Scripture just keeps going back into the conversation of sexual immorality. But let me tell you, when, it, when you start that conversation in Genesis, the reason that God comes out against sexual immorality is because when you look at this, the way that women were treated, right, they were viewed as objects of sexuality, right, as a possession, God begins the conversation in the book of Genesis saying that women are more valuable than this. And so the idea of waiting until marriage and the idea of monogamy inside of marriage is about treating the female to the level of value that she deserves to be treated to. And so what happens, unfortunately, in these broken cultures, and Paul addresses this in Romans chapter one, is that when a culture just gets... Filled with so much depravity, the last thing that happens, right, is that the women begin to believe that. They begin to believe that about themselves. They see themselves as a part of the sexual revolution. Uh, it's okay that I'm an object of sexuality. I embrace it, I own it. And the reality is, God's argument through all this is like, if you want to respect my daughters, men, you are not going to treat them this way. And so this constant call is about creating respect for the women because the women are, are, and it just, you can imagine, are not treated well in these environments. And so in order to help establish better homes, better communities, there's a call constantly inside of scripture for men to have self-control, practice abstinence, get married and have a family. Why? because they're advocating for women. And I think it's a really important conversation for us to have. So now I want to add this in because this last week, uh, you know, we we constantly see new celebrities coming up in the uh, movement of uh, accusation and pointing to men who have uh, taken advantage of women. And it's a real issue. Um, uh, One of the things that I realized this week uh, is that cons- consent is not enough. We need morality. Because the one that came up this week, and uh, i trying not to, to name names in some of this stuff, but the one that came up this, this week was uh, a, a person in the music industry was engaged in a relationship that apparently by testimony was consensual, but it left the female nonetheless feeling afraid not wanting to live, she talked about how that even though she, that basically like her mind, she she thought this was going to just be normal to be treated this way, to be hurt and to be raped inside of this relationship, and so she didn't say anything at the time, and I, we create this culture of consent, right, and that's what's going on out there, and I'm going to tell you, that is, that is not the language that we need to be using, and I've been guilty of this, like I, a lot of times, like, look, look, you probably have grabbed onto this. I'm a conservative person, right? I know that's a bad word in uh, America right now. I'm a conservative person and I have been guilty of saying, look, do what you want to do in your home, just leave me alone, right? But I do think that actually there's some problems with even that mindset and this idea of sexual immorality that keeps coming back, if we don't speak up about it, if we are not teaching on the proper way to engage in sexual relationships. I'm going to tell you, we're going to continue to see women coming to the, to, to, to the table with stories of how they've been hurt and taken advantage of because it is the nature of sinful men, right? Come to know Jesus, change the way that you live your life, and do not see women as objects of your sexual fantasies, right? Fight against that broken nature inside of you. The third one is strangled in blood, Uh, and so this is a call to value life in a world that does not. Uh, The idea was that if you strangled something that you were going to eat, you did not drain the blood out of it, okay? And so ultimately, the blood was still inside of the meat, and the scripture, going all the way back to the old law, had said not to eat meat that... Uh, still had blood in it. The idea was that there has to be something in our lives that we connect as a value point to life, right? And so in the Old Testament, the idea was that blood helps us see the value of life, right? So when we see somebody bleeding, we immediately go, there's a risk, right, of life ending here, right? And so what do we do? We want to stop the flow of blood because that could save their life. And so this, this idea here is like we live in a culture that doesn't have the same value of life that we have. And so what does James say? James says here, listen, let them decide they want to get circumcised. Here's some things that they need to be worried about. One of them is we've got to value life. The value of life has got to be one that is important. Now, because we live today in a culture of science, uh, I want to just go ahead and tell you that, interestingly, all three of those things that are mentioned actually turn out to be good for us, right? Uh, We can kind of set the idea of idols to the side for a moment because that can take a while to unpack. But sexual immorality, rape, hurt, like, those are bad things. Science would agree don't treat women that way, right? Uh, We know that when the blood isn't drained from meat, it actually can make the meat toxic and it's unhealthy and you can get parasites inside of you. And so science actually backs up the things that the scripture is saying. Uh, So I wanna point out one more thing. Paul does not silence the people that he is having these conversations with. That is not his approach. Uh, It was the Pharisees and Sadducees that sought to silence the apostles. They wanted Jesus silenced. They wanted those who were teaching about Jesus to be silenced. This was the reason that most of the apostles lost their lives. It was stop talking about Jesus, right? They wanted them to be silenced. And Paul doesn't do that same thing. The, The writers of the New Testament are not saying like, hey, you've got to go and silence them. They cannot, they don't need to be speaking. No, 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 no. They were willing to allow them to speak because the apostles believed that truth doesn't need silence to be legitimate. Come on, I want you to hear what I'm saying right now, right? Truth does not require silence to be legitimate, right? But can I tell you that the work of the enemy requires truth to be silenced? Because truth will always triumph. Because what does truth do? It sets us free. And The idea of being able to speak up versus being silenced is something that you and I should care about. One, we're allowed to care about it in this nation. And, and, you know, uh, we did baptism for Coco a moment ago and she grew up in a nation where freedom of speech was not a right that was acknowledged, right? I mean, there are people in China who disappear. Listen to what I'm saying, disappear, gone because they use their voice to speak against the Communist Party, right? The, the, uh, one of the wealthiest men in the world, the guy that owns uh, Alibaba, I think is the name of the site. Like, I was reading an article about him the other day. The guy disappeared for speaking out against uh, the Communist Party, and then he showed back up, and people who know him are like, it's almost like he's a robot. Like, he doesn't say anything. He's completely silent. Like, when media is trying to interview him, he doesn't say anything. He has no responses, right? And that's one of the guys that showed back up. Like, lots of these people, they're they just, they're gone, right? So the apostles don't ever make the case for silencing people. They just want the ability to speak the truth because the truth will always rise to the surface. So the concept of free speech as a God-given right stretches beyond the confines of the faith. As Christians, we cannot fear it because the truth does not need silence to be victorious. I'll just point out some more contemporary thoughts on this. Elon Musk recently said, big media companies, no one believes you anymore. You lost your credibility a long time ago. Why? Because of silencing the truth, right? And these aren't necessarily people who are Christians. Benjamin Franklin famously said, whoever would overthrow the liberty of a nation must begin by subduing the freeness of speech. Freedom of speech is essential, right? And when it comes to the gospel, you do not have to be afraid that somebody's hearing some other tale, some other narrative. If the gospel is presented, the gospel will not return void. It is truth. So, Paul uses that right to address the people, and Paul's wording is very intentional, I know we're going a little bit long. I want to cover a couple of verses in Galatians, and I'll get you out of here. Um, We'll begin here in verse 1 of chapter 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. I say that there's some very intentional language here, and there is some very intentional language. Paul was a master of the language that he used, the words that he used, and so we're going to unpack this very quickly. And all the brothers who are with me, I want to point out. If you're in your scripture, we're reading from the ESV. There's this little. Uh, there'll be a little letter there, oftentimes, because there's a footnote. Uh, so that word brothers, uh, it. Translates many times to mean brothers and sisters in New Testament usage. Depending on the context, the plural Greek word adelphoi translated brothers may refer to either brothers or to brothers and sisters. And just a significant note, because I think a lot of times uh, in our culture, one of the arguments that's made is that you know the Bible doesn't acknowledge women or treat women well, and that's just not true. And Paul is is consistently working with men and with women, and the prophet that are operating during this time uh, are men and women. In fact, Philip's four daughters are prophesying uh, at one point. And so this is, re- this is a reference to the men and the women. Verse 3, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. So Jesus did not withhold from us is what he says, even his, even his life. There was nothing that, that Jesus held back. So he begins this by saying, We're, I'm here speaking on behalf of Jesus who held nothing back, not even his life. He gave it all, right? And he uses this word uh, about evil in the, in the age This was common use, right, to talk about ages. And the way that the Jews looked at ages is they looked at these ages based on the the fulfillment of prophecies, when prophecies were given, when prophecies were fulfilled. And so they viewed the age after Jesus's ascension, right, as being the current age and that we would still be in that age. So he talks about the evil of the present age. He's talking about the, the time period between then and where you and I are living right now. Uh, verse 5, to whom be the glory forever and ever, Amen and a woman. That's not what it says, actually. It just says amen. And I just want to take a point, moment to point this out to you in case you were confused. Um, this has nothing to do with gender. Uh, amen in the Greek means surely, may it be, properly, or trustworthy. Okay? So it's, it's, it's may it be. Let it be so. Amen. I'm in agreement with that. It's not a, a, a proclamation of a gender whatever. Paul is reminding them that they are not adherents to Judaism or any other religion. This is the point that he begins with, right? So he's writing to the church. They're being told some crazy stuff, and he wants to remind them that it is, this is about Jesus. Uh, verse 6, he says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. This word, astonished, is used in the Greek to mean disappointed, unbelief, and confusion. This And, and this is one of the difficult things because the Greek language has um, words that take on... Um, you'll have specific words. I'm trying to think about how to... Like, like we'll, we'll use... Like, we'll say something is very good, right? But instead of very good, they may have a just different words for good that help to create how good it is, okay? It's probably not a great analogy. Look, here's the, here's the way it is. Astonished would not be like, oh, I was astonished that my wife made me breakfast. This type of astonishment would have been used to say, I am astonished that my neighbor is a murderer, right? Like, like I, this, is, this is something that is on a moral level right? So the specific language here is not just like, oh, I'm surprised, like I didn't see that coming. It is shock, okay? Uh, And then he uses this word deserting here. So uh, I pulled this from one of the commentaries, uh, uh, this idea, the Greek word is one regularly used for a deserter, a turncoat, or apostate, Either in war, politics, or religion, the tense is strictly present. You are now at this moment in the act of falling away. So when he says deserting, he means you are actively right now a turncoat. You are in the act of it, okay? Not like, oh, kind of flip it, but this is something that's happening right now in your life. And then this word here, he says, and are turning to a different gospel, And and I just want to break some of these words down because we can just kind of gloss over them when we're reading. So, (coughs) it is to be regretted that the English language hardly admits the fine shade of distinction which exists here in the Greek. The Greek has two words for different. One, the first of those which is here used implying a difference in kind. The other implying mere numerical addition. So when he says different... He's not talking about the idea of like, well, it's got a little something extra or a little something's missing, okay? Does that make sense? He is saying it is altogether an entirely separate thing. So all the ingredients that go into making up this gospel, you have gone and gotten entirely different ingredients, poured them in, and you're trying to bake the same cake. It's not like you've added a little too much salt to the mixture, right? Right? You ever hear the stories of people who mistaken the salt and the sugar, and they end up making the cake, and it tastes terrible because they put too much of something in? It's not what he's saying. He's saying that you are in a completely different zone here. So when I say that he's upset, Paul is upset, and he is coming, and he is telling them, "You guys are so far off base, and it is heresy." Verse seven. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. So, not that there is another one. This is a very forceful word in the Greek, and it would be that there is a paradox or that this is, like, like it's absurd or it's preposterous, right? Not that there is another one. This, it's absurd, right, that you would even think that there is another one. Like, I, I can't even fathom how ridiculous it is. So uh, the only way to mention a second gospel is to mention something that does not exist. This is the point that he's trying to make. Like, like you're, you're in complete make-believe land. Like this is complete. Like it doesn't exist. And then he says here, there are some. And uh, reading through commentaries, something that's really interesting here is that the language indicates they don't deserve the dignity of being named. And just so you understand, a lot of times in Scripture, uh, the, the enemy is not named intentionally because there is incredible power in a name, right? Moses interacts with the burning bush, and what happens uh, 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 is he says, I need a name so that I can go back and tell them who sent me, and God doesn't bite He says, just tell them, I am sent you, right? Because what does he understand? He understands there's incredible power in a name, right? And this would have made sense to to these these Jews who were getting saved. They would not speak the name of God. They would only write out, right, his name, and that they actually left the vowel sounds out of the way that they wrote his name. So uh, uh, it would not be pronounceable, right? because they saw such incredible power in the name. So the reason that they argue that the enemy is never named, like we have names for him, right, uh, and we've put proper names in there, but you don't actually find them in Scripture is because it is not, he, doesn't des- he doesn't have to deserve the dignity of a name. And this is the same language Paul is using right here. It's like, I'm not even going to give names to these people because they, they don't deserve the dignity of being recorded here in the book that will last for eternity. This is a, a, it's a hard slam. I just want you to get that. Like, like, I understand the importance of the letters that I'm writing. They are forever and ever going to be spoken of, and they don't deserve to have their name mentioned here. They are so heretical. And he says that there are some who trouble you. And this word for trouble is that they seek division. Now, I got to tell you, sitting down with them over a cup of coffee, they, they don't understand probably themselves that that is what they're seeking. And so we have to be careful. Like, we, we cannot measure people off of their intention when we are talking about the gospel. That is what Paul's trying to emphasize to us. It's like, it's not, this isn't about intention. Like, they're going, oh, I really am trying to do good. Look, you aren't doing good. So you can receive that and see change in your life, okay, or you've got to be separated, Again, very, very harsh. And he says here that they distort. So in the Greek, the the word here for distort, and you probably will see this if we're reading out the ESV, but if you're in NIV, King James, some of these other translations, you'll see some of these other words here because this is one of those that they really debate over how to emphasize it. So it could be to you pervert it, you corrupt it, you change it. So there's this idea that it is off and I mean, just think about the way that if we use the term perverted, right? Immediately we go, that's not okay, right? When somebody is perverted, when somebody is acting perverted, like even in our society today, we don't champion that, right? We would go, no, 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 that, that is not okay. And that's the type of language that he's using here. Just a couple more verses. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. So Paul acknowledges that even those with good intentions can find themselves deceived. Paul says, even us. So this is a fair thing for all of you and I to get a hold of, that we might find somebody in our journey of faith that we look at and go, man, they're a great Bible teacher. They love the Lord. I, I'm feeding off of that. I, I count them as spiritual authority and they can get off base. And I could name some names of people that in my life I have looked to and said, man, they really do a great job at teaching scripture. And then all of a sudden, I remember one time, one of them made a reference in a sermon and I looked over at Carmen and I was like, something's not... Right. And then ultimately, that person ended up going down the whole rabbit hole of the Bible is not authoritative. It's just these basic ideas of, of men and women. And, and it just begins to unravel in their life. And Paul says that, that if that happens, even to us as leaders, you've got to be wise enough to say no. And this is hard because I hear people who, when, when a minister falls, I'll hear people say, Well, I got saved under that ministry right? It happens. It happens. Paul says it it can happen. It can happen. The person that led you to the Lord could very well go completely off their rocker and start teaching a gospel other than the gospel that is in Scripture. It can happen. So you need to be cautious. You need to be careful. Verse nine, as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. This word here in the Greek for accursed is anathema, and it is also anathema. And I wanna explain why real quick. So it has two forms, one with a long E and one with a short E. Anathema initially meant devoted to God, But over time, the use of the short E came to mean devoted to the curse of God. And so when Paul is writing this, he's using a word that had been used in the Greek culture for a while. And if you said it as anathema, you meant that they were committed to God. They were faithful. But if they were anathema, this was somebody that was committed to wickedness. This was somebody that was committed to the curse of God. So when somebody, you you, you ever hear people who are like, uh, uh, you know, I'm charging into hell. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm ready for hell. Like, I want hell. Like, that's the type of mindset. So this is what he's saying. He says they're a curse. They don't even maybe realize it, right? But they are right now living their lives in a way, right, that they are actually devoted to the curse of God to be separated from him. And then the final verse that I'll cover here is, he says, "'For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God, "'or am I trying to please man? "'If I were still trying to please man, "'I would not be a servant of Christ.'" Summarized, if my present conduct was really that of a man-pleaser, I should be something very different from what I am. He says, look at the fruit of my life, right? works do not save us, but works identify us. The way we live our lives, the things we do, people can look at you and go, oh yeah, you're a believer. You're a Christian. There's something about you, right? You know that feeling when somebody says, I'm a Christian, and then the next thing you know, they're drunk, swearing like a sailor, and talking about all the different partners they've been with in the last couple of months, and you're like, you're a Christian? Like, I thought I read in the Bible that wasn't the lifestyle of a Christian, right? He says, he says, I, my life would look very different if what I was aiming to do was to please man. But what I'm aiming to do is to please the Father. Seeking the approval here, right? Uh, he says, for am I now seeking approval? In the Greek, it is to convince, to pacify, to con, uh, conciliate, right? So, He says, am I now trying to pacify you? Do you need pacifying? Is that what you're looking for in the scripture? Is that what you're looking for in a church? Is that what you're looking for in the gospel? Somebody that'll pacify you to make you feel good about yourself? We know that that is what many want. Paul says, is that what I'm attempting to do? Am I trying to pacify you? No, because why? The gospel is the only hope. Me pacifying you is not going to save you. This is, I say this from time to time. This is one of the reasons why when we close here at City Church, I am very careful about the way that we move into prayer. Because I do not want to manipulate your emotions to pacify some need you have so that you respond to what I am saying. Uh, you need to be responding to what the Holy Spirit is doing in your life in that moment because you can, I can flood the altars with people who say, I'm saved, but if their lives are not transformed, then it is a false testimony. And I've grown up in that culture where we measured the success of a Sunday service by how many people came to the altar, and that is not the measure of the success that we are looking for. That's the measure of me being able to sit around the table with other pastors and say, hey, let me tell you what we're doing. But I'm not trying to please other men. I'm trying to please God. And so the question I have for you is, what do you know of this gospel? That's the question to be asking over the course of this series. Right? What do you know of this gospel? There's a roadmap, right? It takes us into eternity, and along the way, if we will take the right path, there are going to be incredible opportunities to load that vehicle up, right? And to get people to 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 be on there with you. Um, I, I man, I wish I would have thought to load this picture. I'll bring it next week. But we were in Kenya a couple of years ago, and there were uh, they have a lot of motorcycles. Okay, and we were riding down the road, and there was this guy on his motorcycle just a normal motorcycle. And there were four of them on it. Four of them on a normal motorcycle, just piled on really tight, holding on to each other. And the last guy's like hanging off. And I took a picture of it, right? Because it's not often that you see four grown men riding on one motorcycle down the road. But but I, I want you to understand that the path that you're going down, it might at times feel a little bit uncomfortable because you might be picking some people up along the way. And when there's no other means and you care about the people, right, I get it. Why were they all four on that motorcycle? Because if they weren't all four on it, it meant one of them was probably going to be walking for days to get to their location. And so they were taking it slow and being safe, and the four of them were getting there together. That's the gospel. The gospel is about you connecting with people, sharing exactly who Jesus is, and saying, let's go. There are people that are, I promise you, there are people that are looking at you right now saying, I trust them, I believe in them, the fruit of their life, I want in my life, and they're just waiting on you to say, hey, let's have a conversation and then their lives will be changed. I'll leave you with this. Let us not be triggered and offended. That does not need to be the the, the mindset of the church today, right, especially not here in America. Right With the incredible amount of freedom we have, let us be focused on the cross. Let's be focused on the cross. Let's stand to our feet and close. Thank you guys for bearing with me. I always have a hard time with the intro to a message to, to really lay the foundation out. Next week, I'll, I'll be more uh, aware of the time. I only apologize because I know people make plans and we have volunteers that are working. But I'll remind you that in the book of uh, Acts, Paul preached for so long that uh, a man fell asleep out of a window, dead, and they went down and had a prayer service, brought him back to life, and went back upstairs and finished the service. So a few minutes over is okay, all right? So, hey, listen, here's the thing. If you need prayer in your life, we're available. Our prayer ministry team's at the back. They'll be masked up, ready to pray with you, however you feel comfortable in this season. They want to pray with you if you need help in in a situation with your family, sickness, uh, uh, just hurt, finances. We want to agree in prayer that God will help meet that need, give you wisdom, help change the the circumstances around you. Uh, If you're in this place and you don't know Jesus as Lord of your life, right? We want to be connected in that conversation. If you want to know more about what it looks like to know Jesus, come see me. See a member of the prayer ministry team in the back. Uh, the scripture is, uh, the scripture says that if we believe in our hearts and confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord, we will be saved. It is a faith moment, right? It does not mean that everything in your life, you walk out the door doing it exactly right. We call that sanctification. God beginning to do the work of making you a better person. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for your goodness and mercy in our lives. I thank you for what you're doing at City Church. I thank you for what you're doing in our world, Lord, all over the place. I'm hearing testimonies from uh, churches that are just seeing people uh, saved, lives being transformed in other parts of the world. God, I know that there's just, there's revival that's breaking out in in parts of our world Lord, we want to see that happen here and we understand that if it's going to be true and real revitalization of the church it's got to come from you from the holy spirit radically bringing transformation into people's lives lord i pray that uh we would be good stewards of the truth and not afraid and lord give us uh uh opportunities where we will not be silenced for speaking the truth we love you and praise you in your mighty name Amen. Amen. We love you guys. As always, go change your world. We'll see you next Sunday.